Uh, we live, the, the premise of this series is that we live in a divided time. And sometimes I hate when people say that because it's like, oh, did there used to be a time when everyone was just unified and everyone agreed? And I don't think so. But we do live in a divided time. We're divided on issues around race and sex and gender and politics. And it does feel like things are more and more divided. I don't, do you feel that? You feel in yourself like it, it, maybe friends and family used to be able to talk about some things, but now you can't talk about those things. You used to be able to maybe like something, and now you can't like something. You used to be able to say something, and now you can't. And, and it, can feel, it can feel really confusing. Like, what am I supposed to think? What am I supposed to understand? And why are things like this? Why is there so much tension? Or why are things moving in this direction? We can feel the what and the why and how. How am I supposed to respond? What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to act? How am I supposed to uh, respond to the things that are around me? We can feel just kind of distraught. I know that I have felt that way, especially over the last few years. We can feel this is confusing and not sure what to think and do. And, and here, here's the reality. I, I feel this, and I'm assuming you feel this. We don't, we don't want to be disliked by other people around us. We don't want to be a jerk. We don't want to be a coward. We don't want to be fired. We don't want to be someone that just says, ah, it doesn't matter, just whatever, and just kind of goes with the flow in a wrong way. We want to be able to be bold, but we want to be able to be gracious. There's kind of all these things that, that we feel swirling around inside of us, and it can be challenging. And in the middle of all this, we have to say, how does God speak? How does God speak into our day and our age and our time and our lives and who we are and where we are and the issues that surround us? Does God have things to say? How does God speak into both where we are to stand and how we are to stand? Both what it is that we are to believe, but how we are to live out and carry out those beliefs. How does God speak into these things. And that's what this series is designed to do. It's designed to help equip us to think through what does God say about a handful of issues? What does God say? What does God say and how are we as his people supposed to live in the middle of that? And I'll, and I'll say this, this series and today, if you are new and kind of joining us, most of the time, not always, but most of the time we kind of go through books of the Bible this, we will obviously open God's word and see how God speaks into things, but might feel a little bit like a mix between school and a lecture and kind of uh, a sermon. It might feel a little bit of a mix because I want to help us understand issues, but also then bring God's word into those issues. So it'll be a little bit of a mix between those things if it feels like school in some ways to you. I'm trying to help us get a deeper understanding, but also go, and how do, how do we live then? How does God's heart and God's word change and shape our lives? And here's what we're going to start with today. Abortion. Now, just that word, my guess is, brings up something in you. It might make you really nervous. It might make you confused. It might make you angry, it might make you sad, it might make you guilty, it might make you just kind of worried about what's about to happen, where's this going to go. Just that word, there's certain words that just the word has power, right? If I would say the word money, that's a powerful word. If I say the word COVID, that word has some power in it, right? There's certain words that just carry a lot of weight just within the word. There, there's a lot just in the word abortion. You think about, this is what I think of when I think about abortion, is how many people feel passionate about these things. How many people feel around this deeply. How many people are moved by this word abortion. 
and we want to understand what does God say? What does God say about this? This is obviously something around us and in our culture and at various times, and I hate to remind you of this, but we're starting to get into kind of the political election season coming up. And with that, they start to take issues and make sure that they're in front of us all the time so that they can help polarize us and divide us. Who's they? You're wondering. That is the question, isn't it? Uh, let me get my tin hat on for a second, but we want to know what does God, what does God say? How does God speak into something that rightfully so is so emotional for many of us? What does God say? And to begin with, here's what I want to do. I, I want to just explore and help you understand a little bit more about this issue. And that, I, I mean, I, I could there's tons of books, there's tons of websites, there's tons of information. I mean, there's so much that we could go through, but I want to just kind of give you a, a high-level understanding in some ways of some of the things around this particular issue. Since abortion became legal in the United States in the 1970s, this is the number of legal abortions that have taken place. It's dropped since uh, the 1990s, but still uh, there is about close to a million, 930,000. I'm not even going to uh, touch the CDC. There's two different uh, institutes that kind of put out these numbers, but I'm not even going to, I can talk about the CDC later if you want, but uh, this is kind of the, the Guttmacher Institute is really the most reliable, and there's close to a million abortions that happen in the United States every year. In Colorado, there were, for the most recent data we have, about 13,000 abortions that took place in Colorado. When you look at when women have abortions, the vast majority are around eight weeks or less, and then the rest is kind of spread out, nine to ten weeks, 14.7. Some happen greater than 21 weeks. Most of them happen kind of in the earlier period. Income, generally, 75% poor or low income. Most of the people that have an abortion are religiously affiliated. Most already have a kid. Most are in their 20s. Most are single. Uh, there's the majority that are non-white. This is, again, from the Guttmacher Institute, which, by the way, just so you know, is a pro-abortion, uh, pro-choice institute. <clears throat> The reasons that people give for having an abortion, very little that are in kind of the rape or health problems, physical health problems. Most, uh, we will talk about some of this, most have to do with kind of life circumstances and choices. It would interfere with their education or career, feel like they're not mature enough to raise a child, done having children, don't want to be a single mother. The majority down here, although these are kind of all related, uh, can't afford to have a baby, not ready for a child. One in three adults say that both, both that human life begins at conception and that the decision to have an abortion begins, uh, belongs excuse me, solely to the woman. Just kind of what do people actually think or feel about abortion? And most people would actually say, yes, life begins at conception, but at the same time, the woman has the choice to choose what she desires. Uh, the majority of adults say abortion should be legal, in some cases, e illegal in others. So the, the vast majority say legal in most cases or all cases, and then some in most cases, and then some, the very few saying not at all. These are kind of some of the views around abortion. That just gives you a little bit of a high-level understanding of when, why, who has abortion and this beginning understanding of the issue. So how do we think about this? How are we supposed to feel about this? How are we supposed to live and respond to this? How does God speak into this? And you can't really open the Bible and a lot of the different issues that we're going to look at, you can't really open the Bible and just say, abortion, what does the Bible say? You can't really do that. What you can do is say, we want to open the Bible 
and know God's heart around all the different issues that relate to this and say, what does God say? God's word does equip us to live all of life, to think through all of life, even if the Bible doesn't operate like a concordance or a dictionary where you can just look up words and that's not how the Bible works. But we can still see what does God say to these things? What is God's heart around this? If you're not a Christian, you may feel, I really don't like the way Christians think about this. It doesn't really make sense. And I would just ask you to listen to at least, here's what the Bible says around some of these things. Here's why Christians believe some of these things. If you're a Christian, and even in the statistics here, the 62% religiously affiliated that participate in abortion, you may not really understand what does God's word say? How does it speak into these things? So today, let's all seek to approach God's word and say, we want to know what the Bible says. And here's where we're going to start. The first is that the Bible would teach us that human life is sacred. Human life is sacred. And I don't think anyone would disagree with that. I think that is a a basic foundational point that most of us can agree with because we would say, why is it not that the strong are just able to destroy the weak? No one that, I mean, most of us, maybe someone secretly holds these beliefs, but most of us don't believe it's okay for the strong to dominate the weak, that that's my position. I believe the strong eat the weak. Most of us don't believe that. We believe in human rights. We believe that the human world is different than the animal world. We were watching uh, back in June when my family was on vacation. We were watching a National uh, Geographic show about swamp lions. I don't know if any of you have seen it. It's just something you watch in a hotel uh, when, when your internet's not working well and you're like, oh, there's a TV. What does this thing do? And you turn it on. And we were watching about swamp lions, and there's these uh, female lions. The male lion had died, and the female, and so now the female lions are nervous because there's these two lion brothers that are kind of hunting, and they're afraid for their lion cub babies. And eventually, these two brother lions come. They kill the, they, they eat the lion cub, and now they begin to kind of say to the the lionesses and uh, the few lion sis, lioness sisters. I know you're like, what is going on here? <laughs> I thought this was about abortion. You're not. And eventually what happens is the, the males, the two male brothers that had eaten the cubs, they, and, and killed the husband, they start to mate with the mom and wife of the person they killed. And my kids were freaking out. They're like, this is, what? She's going to marry the guy that killed and ate her babies and killed her husband? And like, it's the animal kingdom, guys. This is just what happens. And none of us would think that that was okay if you said, hey, could you do my wedding? I just, uh, well, I, I killed her husband and ate her babies, but I think we're going to have a really good marriage. None of you guys would do that or think that that was okay, right? Does anyone object to this wedding? Yes, we object, right? No one would do that. We have human rights, and we know that human life is sacred. We know that humans have rights. And that comes from the Bible. There's nothing that says that humans should have rights outside of pragmatically. It should, it probably society functions good that way. Or if we believe the Bible's vision, which comes all the way back from Genesis 1. God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. This is the doctrine of the imago Dei, which just means image of God. That human beings are made in God's image. Human beings are made in God's image. That gives every single human being value, worth, dignity, beauty. To say you reveal something of who God is just by being a human, that you are made in his image. Do you know that? That whoever you are, however old you are, however young you are, however rich you are, or poor you are, however able-bodied you are, or disabled you are, that you bear God's image. That just because he made you, you have dignity, value, worth. Before anything you've ever done, 
God says, you are not just a lion. You are made in my image. And so the starting place of any conversation about many things, the anthropological foundation that we should have as Christians is this. Human life is sacred. Human life is sacred. And secondly, creating life is beautiful. Creating life is beautiful. We have a God of life that says human life is sacred. And really flowing out of that, we have a God of life that says to create life is beautiful. Now, in one sense, we all know this, right? In one sense, we all know that creating life is beautiful. We all love babies, right? I googled cute babies. And this is what comes up. And even if you Google ugly babies, they're still pretty cute. Like, no one looks at babies and are just like, yeah, take them or leave them. They're stupid. No one. We all think babies are cute. We all think there's very few things that we can, get, uh, that we can agree on. Like puppies, yes, those are cute. Babies, those are cute. After that, it kind of starts to go downhill. We start to get divided. But puppies and babies, we agree. Babies are cute. We all agree that creating life is beautiful, right? Creating life is beautiful. Now, at the same time, do you know that in the United States, our population, our birth rate is significantly decreasing? So we, on the one hand, agree creating life is beautiful. Babies are cute. On the other hand, something's going on in our society that there is actually a devaluing of life. Something's going on in our world where we actually begin to say, eh, other things kind of matter more. And that might be that we prize career more than we used to. It might be that we prize freedom more than we used to. It might be that we don't want, that we kind of want to avoid chaos and we want to travel as much as we can and keep our options open. It may be that all sorts of things. But something has happened where even though we know Creating life is beautiful. Babies are cute. The birth rate, this is not my opinion, is going down, down, down. In fact, it's actually getting to a place where it's actually concerning for our population. I don't know if you've heard of overpopulation and think that it's actually not true. There's people that are now starting in our country to worry, like has happened in China, because they had the one child policy, where when population goes down and you're, you're, and you're not replacing, you're not replacing the amount of people that are dying, it actually begins to get pretty concerning for the economy, for everything. And so though we say that we love babies and life is beautiful, we also, our values and our life practices aren't really matching that. But here's what the Bible would say around this. The Bible says, back to Genesis, right after it says that God made them in their image, it says God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Now, inherent in this command to say, be fruitful and multiply is have babies. That's what that means. I'm making you in my image, and now I want you to fill the world with my image. I want more and more people that are revealing something of who I am. I want more and more image bearers of me in the world so that the world becomes full of the glory of God, that people are able more and more to see who God is as there's more and more humans filling the world. The Bible also says this, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. It says, children are a heritage from the Lord. Other translations, a blessing from, the children's are this deep, blessing from God. And it even uses this image of arrows in it saying, when you have kids, you're shooting them into the world, filling the world with more blessing. That's what the Bible says. Children are a blessing. Creating life is beautiful. In fact, when Jesus comes, some people, he's, he's very popular, he's preaching, he's healing people, and some kids are brought to him. People were bringing infants to him so that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. 
Jesus, however, invited them. Let the little children come to me and don't stop them because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. So I, I can't, can you even imagine this scene today? That if people, you were bringing your kid, let's say you're at church and you're trying to introduce, not that I'm Jesus, but if I'm preaching and afterwards you're like, hey, I want you to meet my baby and uh, our, our uh, volunteers and stuff here are like, get that baby away from him. Like, what? Yeah, get the baby away. It says they rebuke them. Don't bring a baby to Jesus. Like, that's what? Jesus says, no, bring them to me. I want, I want the kids. Jesus is revealing God's heart to us. Creating life is beautiful. Children are beautiful. God loves them. God wants the world filled with children. And creating life is beautiful. Which means this. It means if we can, we should have lots of kids. It means if we can. Now listen, some of you are like, well, I'm single or struggle with infertility. We've been there. Miscarriage. We've been there. And so I, I understand all that. But if, if you can, we should have lots of kids. If you can't, in the Bible, in the New Testament, we're also called to make disciples, to make spiritual children, to invest in their lives. It also means that we should love and enjoy the kids around us, not to have the, the heart of the disciples that is, get those kids away. But do you have God's heart that says, I love life? Creating life is beautiful. This is the heart that God has. It's the heart that God presents to us. Here's what it also means. For those of you that maybe particular stay-at-home moms, and it can sometimes feel like, man, all I do is wipe butts and feed bottles and just kind of, ugh. Your work matters significantly. Your work matters. You are filling the world with people that bear God's image. Creating life is beautiful. We have a God of life. And so, of course, he says, I want more and more of it. Third, we're, we're starting, so far, everyone's like, okay, good, good, good. Third, life begins at conception. Now, obviously, this is kind of the, one of the controversial pieces of this issue. But we have to ask, when you're thinking about and discussing and trying to understand what God says, we have to ask, when does human life start? We have to ask that. If we say human life is sacred, believe in human rights, say life is beautiful, okay, so when does that start? We believe in human rights, when does humanity start? When do those rights start? When does it begin? We believe life is sacred, we believe life is beautiful, so when does that begin? When does it start? In a lot of ways, this is where the core of the difficulty or issue around abortion is centered. When does life begin? This is why you will see often it not referred to as life or as a baby, but as a clump of cells, as fetal tissue, as tissue, as a fetus, a lot of words are used instead of to say a baby because this issue of when life begins is a huge part of understanding what we should think and how we should view this issue. And many of you have probably seen some of these things. And for those of you that are pregnant, you know a lot of this. But I won't even read all of these things, but the baby is forming. I mean, at week seven, it says the lungs are beginning to form. By week 12, the brain is coordinating contraction of the muscles. The baby can flex its arms, elbows, wrists. The baby begins to use its facial muscles. It's sucking its thumb. All the vital organs are formed by week 11. Swallowing, urinating even. You're like, what? I think I've just felt something happening. Yes, the baby was peeing inside of you. <laughs> All sorts of things are, are already forming very, very, very early on. Life, you know, it's, it's actually quite amazing because 
before we had sonograms and before we had ultrasounds, all those things, there was kind of more confusion about when these things begin and when things happen. But do you know that 90% of women that have a sonogram before they have an abortion change their mind? Because they begin to see this. They begin to see it's not like a fetus. That, that just sounds kind of like a creature. But when you say, what is a fetus? Well, it's actually, it's a human. It's just a tiny human. Just a small human. It's got toes and fingers. and I mean, all of you are big fetuses. That's really all you are. That's what we all are. I mean, it's, it didn't come from a panda, right? It came from a human. So I've heard some people say, well, it's a fetus. But what kind of fetus is it? Well, it's a human fetus. Well, it's a human. And I don't know if you know this. I don't know how much, you know, some of you have dug into this. I've spent the last several weeks and months doing a lot of research and work on putting together this series. Scientists, this is not from a Christian standpoint. This is an official website of the United States government, just so you know. That's what it says as you go to there. <coughs> the scientific consensus, this is recent, 2021, on when a human life begins. 96% confirm that human life begins at fertilization, at conception. This is not a Christian study. This is an official United States website or whatever it says from the United States government. 96% of scientists agree human life begins at conception. That's when it begins. So this is not a Christian perspective. This is a scientific perspective. This is a scientific perspective, which in some ways... For those of you that maybe find this difficult, just kind of pause for a second. Of course, when else would it begin? It begins at this point. It's small, but this is when science says that it begins. So here's what happens. Often then, some people would say, I don't agree with that. Maybe just because they haven't ever done any of this research. They don't know that this is actually what science says. They haven't thought through the logical implications. They don't know about the, at seven weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, it's peeing in you. They, they don't know all that stuff. Maybe they just haven't thought through it. Others have thought through it, but then what begins to happen is more of a philosophical argument to say life might begin at that point, but when does someone become a person? And there becomes to be then a separation between human life and personhood. There, there becomes to be a separation between this is a living human and between yes, but it's not a person. It's not a person. And so uh, this is from a journal of medical ethics. This is two different professors from Ghent University, University of Oxford. These aren't like quacks. This is in 2011. And this is just one sample. You can find a lot of stuff around this. But because there's, they make a distinction between human and person, they argue that abortion after a baby has been born should be allowed. When, how long, that, that depends. But because there's a distinction between human life and personhood, they argue that it would be okay, even after a woman delivers the baby, that that child could be aborted. And I won't read you this entire thing, but the beginning says, abortion is largely accepted, even for reasons that do not have anything to do with the fetus's health, by showing, I'll just read you this first part, both fetuses and newborns do not have the same moral status as actual persons. So they argue for what they call afterbirth abortion. Because there is not... Personhood. There is not the same moral status that you and I have. These are not, again, these are not, this is a, this is a largely held belief that there's a distinction between human life and personhood. And I believe they are very consistent. People like them and a ethicist, famous ethicist named Peter Singer, who argue for these things, say there's a difference between biological life and biographical life. It's a nice phrase to say there's a difference between just because you are a living human, biological life, that's not the same thing as your biographical life, how long have you lived, what's your story, 
and those things. And so therefore, you do not have the same moral status. Okay, so scientifically, people agree this is a human life. They are very consistent and saying, yes, it is. But that doesn't mean that it has the same moral status as you and I do. There's a difference between humanity and personhood. And what that is showing is this. They are acknowledging if we could say this is a person, that would be wrong. If we could say that this is a person, then it would be morally wrong. I listened to tons of different debates. My wife was getting sick of it. She's like, what are you listening to? And she's like, well, another debate, another debate. Tons of different debates to try to hear some of people's perspectives on this. People go around and round and round and round. Well, when is it a person? When's it not? When is it a he- well, yes, it's a human, but when's it a person? When's and it, in a lot of ways, that's such an arbitrary distinction. A human, a person, what does that mean? But what we have to do is say, who gets to decide that? Who gets to decide if it's a human or a person? It is very logically consistent to say, are you saying it was a human but not a person right before it was delivered? And now that it's outside, it's a human and a person? These people that say that doesn't make sense, which is why they argue, yeah, you could kill the baby, maybe up to six months. That's why they argue that. Because it, it doesn't, the dividing line, it doesn't really make sense. But we have to say, who gets to decide? Some people that were pro-choice, they would even describe themselves as pro-abortion, said anything before 20 weeks, not a human. Because at 20 weeks, the baby can begin to feel pain. So at that point, you would have to say, it's a, that's a person and a human. But where's the dividing line? It, we, could, we could fall all over the map on trying to mark out some sort of dividing line. But we have to ask this question, if you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian, just to help you understand what Christians have to do, we have to say, what does God say? How does God speak into that? What does God bring to this point? And here is what the Bible says. It says, back to the verse we looked at, we are made in God's image. Now think about that. You are made in God's image. So when do you get God's image? You don't get God's image at three years old. You don't get God's image at one years old. You don't get God's image at nine years old. You don't get God's image at nine months old or eight months old or six months old. You are made in God's image. From the very beginning that God brought you life, he made you in his image. That's from the beginning. God doesn't bestow image status on you later he makes you in his image the bible doesn't understand or have any framework for a human personhood distinction it says you are made in my image from the very beginning which is why there's all sorts of verses that say things like this did not the one who made me in the womb also make them did not the same god form us God is forming us, making us from the beginning, active. Jeremiah says, the word of the Lord came to me. I chose you. This is God speaking. I chose you before I formed you in the womb. So God chose that he would exist and then forms him in the womb. I set you apart before you were born. God has a plan for people even before they're born. Psalm 139, it was you, God, who created my inward parts, you, Knit me together in my mother's womb. Your hands made me and formed me. Give me understanding so that I can learn your commands. The Bible says you were formed, knit together, made in God's image. That's an amazing thing. You are not an accident. God took his time. He had a plan even before you were born for your life. And he knit you together, formed you, created you, wanted you. God wanted you on this earth. And he formed you. He knit you. He made you in his image. That's what the Bible says. We are made in God's image. We have a God of life. 
and gives you his image from the beginning. Which leads us to the next thing. Life should then not be taken. Life shouldn't be taken. If life is sacred and creating life is beautiful and God forms you and knits you and plans you in his image from the very beginning, then life should not be taken. Which seems basic. If you, if you walk around saying, I don't think we should take life, most people aren't going to disagree with that. Life should not be taken. Very simple, Exodus 20, 13. Do not murder. Matthew 5, 21. Jesus says, you've heard it was said to our ancestors, do not murder. So Jesus picks up the same thing. Whoever murders will be subject to judgment. Exodus 21, this is interesting, that is related to the conversation even around abortion. He says, when men get in a fight, and I love that it just is like, it's going to happen. When men get in a fight, not if, just two, di- two guys are fighting. We know it's good. When men get in a fight and hit a pregnant woman so that her children are born prematurely, but there's no injury, the one who hits her must be fined, as the woman's husband demands from him. And he must pay according to judicial assessment. If there is an injury, then you must give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, bruise for bruise, wound for wound. So it says if two men get in a fight and a woman's hit, she delivers the baby, there's not an injury, you're going to have to pay a fine. And I love that it. it's like you're going to have to pay a fine according to what the husband says and the judicial assessment. I love that it adds that, though, also. <laughs> like according to the husband, and the husband's like, it's going to be a billion dollars and judicial assessment. But if you do cause an injury, if you cause the baby to die, life for life. Life should not be taken. Now, here's what's interesting. Many people that are pro-choice, pro-abortion, would actually say that they know that this is taking a life. This is from Camille Pagela. She's a, a feminist author, professor. And don't even worry about this the headlines about Sarah Palin and McCain, it's kind of old. But what she says is this. Hence, I have always frankly admitted that abortion is murder. The extermination of the powerless by the powerful. Liberals, for the most part, have shrunk from facing the ethical consequences of their embrace of abortion, which results in the annihilation of concrete individuals and not just clumps of insensate tissue. She's pro-abortion, pro-choice. But she says, look, I know it's murder. And those that deny that, they're really just kind of playing tricks with themselves. And there's a lot of people that would say this. Say, yeah, at the end of the day, yes, this is taking a life. This is murder. Those aren't my words. This is someone that's pro-choice. She's got her feminist credentials. She says, yes, this is murder. So why is it okay? Well, there's different arguments. This is still a, she's arguing for it. Why? Some people would say, well, because it's not a person. Back to that. It's murdering a fetus. It's murdering a human, but not a person. Others would say, yes, it is murder. It has nothing to do with human or person or anything about that. What it has to do with is the greater good. What it has to do with is it is a sacrifice. This child is being taken, but it's a sacrifice for the greater good. Here's how another uh, author says this. Yet a fetus can be a human life without having the same rights as the woman in whose body it resides. She's the boss. Her life and what is right for her circumstances and her health should automatically trump the rights of the non-autonomous entity inside of it. Always. And I would put the life of a mother over the life of a fetus every single time, even if I still need to acknowledge my conviction that the fetus is indeed a life, a life worth sacrificing. So sometimes it might be, well, it's not a person, it's a human, but oftentimes the answer is it is a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice to something that they believe is the greater good. Oftentimes, freedom to have the freedom to live the life they want, to have the freedom to do the things they want to do, 
to have the freedom from financial difficulty, to have the freedom from certain life choices being put upon them, that it is a life, but it's a sacrifice worth making. And the truth is, there are other good things. Freedom is good, and career is good. There's other good things in our life. And we often have trade-offs that we have to make. But human life is sacred. Human life is sacred and should never be sacrificed. You wouldn't sacrifice a nine-year-old. And if the reason for that is because human life is sacred, then that's why those building blocks matter. Human life is sacred. Creating life is beautiful. Life begins at conception. And so it doesn't matter if there's other things that are good. Human life is sacred, so life should not be taken, which is why the very first command in the Bible not to murder is actually rooted back in the sacredness of humans. In Genesis 9, it says, I will require a penalty for your lifeblood. I will require it from any animal, from any human. Someone murders a fellow human, I will require that person's life. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans his blood will be shed. For God made humans in his image. The very first rooting of the prohibition against murder in the Bible is because human life is sacred. It's made in my image. And if that's still true today, which it is, if it's still true that human life is sacred and it's made from the beginning in God's image, then it's still true that we should not take the life of a human. Now, this is part of why the common slogan of my body, my choice, is really a misnomer. Because there are two bodies. There is two humans. Yes, you have a life. And it's beautiful and it's valuable. And it's, there's all sorts of amazing things that God wants to do in your life and through your life. And there's good things and freedom and career and all sorts of choices and difficulties and also, yes, your life is sacred and matters. But when there's two humans, now we're not just talking about one body. We're talking about there are two lives that are sacred. Two humans that have rights. Two lives that God has made in his image. This is why the early church, when the church first got started, took the issue of abortion actually very seriously. One of the earliest Christian documents that we have outside of the Bible is called the Didache. And very simply, it says, do not murder a child by or abortion of kill a newborn infant. This is another one that's from Athenagoras of Athens, arguing uh, to the Roman emperor in AD 177 that says, what reason would we have to commit murder when we say that women who induce abortions are murderers and will have to give an account of it to God? The fetus in the womb is a living being and therefore the object of God's care. This is the early church from the very beginning because they held to these foundational beliefs that I'm explaining to you, that human life is sacred, creating life is beautiful, life begins at conception, and that life should not be taken because God is a God of life. This is what the early church held to, which is why they lived in a culture where what was very common was called exposure, where they would take a baby, set it outside to die if they didn't want it often if it was a girl. They would set it outside. This was very common practice in the ancient world, particularly in Rome. They'd set a baby outside, put it in a trash can, something like that. It was called exposure. And the early church would come and they would rescue those babies, which is where we eventually got hospitals, orphanages, all sorts of those things. Adoption. They would rescue these children because that is what they believed. They believed we have a God of life. Life is not to be taken. Now, here's what this means if this is true. I, I want you to follow along with me in some of these building blocks, and I know we're, we, we start to get into some of the kind of difficult territory. If human life is sacred, if human life is sacred and life begins at conception and we're not supposed to take life because human life is sacred, then this has a lot of implications. It means that we should not participate in abortion. It means that we shouldn't participate in any practices that might lead to the ending of human life. Whether that's certain birth control methods, whether that's 
IVF done in certain ways, whether that's anything that would lead to the ending of a human life. And probably what that means, based on statistics, is that many of us have taken life. And that might be a hard truth to to think about. That many of us, even if you're a pro-life Christian, have actually not thought through all the implications of this. And many of us have taken life. And here's what that means. That can be hard to admit. If we participated in anything around this, maybe you know that you've had an abortion, 62% are religiously affiliated. Maybe it's just other practices that are around that. Maybe you never did your research when it came to birth control. Maybe you never did your research when it came to fertility clinics and various things. It can be a hard thing to swallow. But many of us do actually have blood on our hands. And here's the good news. Human life should not be taken, which means it's a sin. But that also means God forgives you. Ephesians 2 says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. That's the good news. That means that we are all forgiven. We are dead in our sins, and we participate in death as dead people. And yet, God makes us alive because of his great love. So here's, here's what that means for, for any of you that have any, that maybe you've never even thought about this. Maybe we just live in a world that's pulled us along without even giving second thought to it. That's part of what the Bible tells us is that sometimes our sin comes from just our life in the world that just moves us along with things, and we're not even thinking about it. The Bible says... Because of the blood of Jesus, you are forgiven. Because of his grace. Not because of you, not because you have to do certain things and fix it and get it right, but because of his great love, he makes dead people alive. That's true for any of you women. That's true for any of you men that have pressured a woman or encouraged her to do something that maybe now your conscience is being pricked towards. You are forgiven. Cleansed given grace and mercy. A life should not be taken because we have a God of life. And that same God of life forgives when we walk in deadness. Next, we are called to lay down our life. We are called to lay down our life. Often the difficulty around thinking through keeping a child or around abortion, the difficulty, and if you look at some of the reasons that I, I showed you at the beginning of the reasons that someone chooses to have an abortion, oftentimes the difficulty is in the thinking about the loss, thinking about what, how it's going to make life harder, thinking about the challenges that we will face if we keep that child. And here's the truth. It is never easy to have kids. Never easy. And some things make it harder your financial situation, where you live, if you're married, not married, that, that's true. That it can be difficult. And the underlying difficulty, even beneath some of those difficulties, is also that we desire and prize freedom and our choices and our success. Even if you haven't participated in any way in abortion or anything like that, you, you, you can still feel that. You can still go, yeah, man, I don't, I don't want to make choices that make my life more difficult. Or sometimes people wait to get married because, oh, I want to wait till my finances or wait till I have this. We, a lot of times we kind of operate in that same mindset. So you, might, you can understand that even if that's not where you have been. And yet, we also know that our highest value, oftentimes as humans, our highest value is to serve other people, Right? And who are some of our heroes? Our, some of our heroes are those that are willing to lay down their life for others. Oftentimes, that's a, a great character in a movie or literature or, or 
people that we respect, firefighters and soldiers or those that are saying, I'm willing to lay down my life for another human being. We all aspire to that. We all aspire to not maybe physically do that, but to a mindset that says, I'm willing to serve other people, especially the vulnerable and weak. I'm willing to serve other people at cost to myself. We all aspire to that. The Bible says that that is, in fact, if you are a Christian, our call. Jesus said, he said to them all, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will save it. Jesus' call to all of us as Christians is to not say, what gives me the most freedom? What gives me the most security? What gives me the most comfort? What gives me the most choices? What gives me the most options? What gives me the most flexibility? What Jesus calls us to do is say, I'm willing to lay down my life for the sake of others. Because that's what Jesus did for us. Jesus says, follow me and do that. And he says, as you do that, you'll actually experience a greater life. If you try to hang on to your life and make sure all my choices and all my things and everything is safe, he says, you actually lose it. But the more that you're willing to be a person that gives, that is free, that is seeking to serve, you actually experience life the way it was designed to be. This is what Jesus did for you and me. He laid down his life to serve us. And then the final thing is this. We are called to fight for life. Sometimes people will say something like this. I'm, I'm pro-life, or maybe some language around that, but, but I won't impose my beliefs on somebody else. That might be fine for you, but uh, I, I'm not going to try to control what you believe. I'm, it's, it, people should just kind of have the freedom to do what they want. I won't do it, but I'm not going to try to influence other people. Now, that's fine for some things. I wouldn't try to make it a law that everyone has to eat at my favorite donut shop or something silly like that. That's fine for some things. But none of us would feel that way about rape. Like, I'm personally opposed to rape, but if it happens to you, that's just kind of what happens. None of us would say that about slavery. Say, I'm personally against it, but if this civilization wants to do it, that's okay with them. So who am I to kind of put laws upon them. None of us would say that with the murder of an adult. We wouldn't say that, yeah, I'm personally against murder, but my neighbors, he, he likes to do it sometimes. None of us would say that, right? But that is oftentimes how, even for those of us that might be Christians, might view abortion. To so say, I'm personally this way, but I don't think the government should be involved. I'm personally this way, but I don't... And yet, that's exactly what a government at its best is supposed to be for, is protecting the weakest and the most vulnerable in society. Government at its best should stay out of all sorts of things and yet protect the weakest and most vulnerable in society. That'll be an upcoming sermon. At its best, that is what government should be doing. Which means that our call as Christians, if you are a Christian, is not just to say, I think that that is wrong. But our thinking should move into our acting. I like the way that Proverbs says this. Could have been written about abortion. It says, rescue those being taken off to death and save those stumbling towards slaughter. If you say, but we didn't know about this, won't he who weighs hearts consider it? Won't he who protects your life know? Won't he repay a person according to his work? None of us can say, we didn't know this was happening. We didn't know that almost a million abortions happen in our country every year. We didn't know. None of us can say that. We have a God of life. We have a God of life. And what it means is that our heart has to match his heart, which means we as Christians, if you are a Christian, must not just know something, but do something. We are called to fight for life. How do you do that? There's a lot of different ways. You can vote. You can give to institutions that are doing good work. You can advocate for certain laws. You can volunteer. That's part of why even that our church partners with, volunteers with 
Hope House, a ministry for teen moms. You can do foster care and adoption. There's all sorts of things that you can do. You, here's one. You can babysit. And you know why? Because that just says, I'm, I believe in a culture of life. I believe that God values life. That for families that in our church, that I hope and pray continue to do foster care and adoption, you can say, I'm going to support that. I'm going to get behind that. All Christians are called to care for fatherless. We fight for life because we have a God of life. So, abortion is a powerful word. I know that. And I don't, I don't know how everyone in here feels, and I'd be happy to talk with you. We have barbecue coming up. Happy to sit down, chat. I know that there's often deep emotion behind this for good reason. It matters. And we can be really divided around how to think through this and how to approach this. We need God's voice to speak into it. We need to say, what does God say? Not just what are the arguments over here and what are the, not, not even just what does science say, not just what do the stat, but what does God say? That is what Christians are called to do. And as we think about all these different reflections on life, they ultimately point us to a God of life that came to this earth in Jesus. And worship band, you guys can come up as we prepare to close. These reflections on life point us to him. You see, God cares about the physical life and all of that that we, that we have been speaking about. But all of these things, you can also think through the spiritual life that Jesus gives to us. Because the Bible uses all those terms for the new birth that he wants to give to us in Christ. It says that he makes us new in his image. That as you become a Christian, Jesus is called the image of God and you are united to him. And you aren't just physically made in God's image, you are. But you also begin to be spiritually made into the image of his son. And... He has created new life in you. That the Bible says that as we come to Christ, we are a new creation. Creating life is beautiful, and Jesus doesn't just create your physical life, but when we come to him, because he is a God of life, he creates new spiritual life in you. And you know when that life begins? At conception. Spiritual life. Which means this. You don't wait to become a Christian at some other time, at some other point, but what the Bible says is the moment that you are saved, the moment you receive that grace, the moment that you are transferred from dead to made alive, you are his. You're born again. Not that you have to earn something, not that you have to make something happen, not that you have to get God's favor, but you are made alive in an instant at con spiritual conception. And the Bible says that that life will never be taken that those that belong to him, that those are brought to him, that those that are made alive in him, that that life can never be put out. That once you are his, that once he has given you spiritual life, that life never goes away. That life will never be taken. He doesn't give a gift that he takes away. And he gave all that to you by laying down his life. That's what we're going to remember when we take communion. If, if you're a Christian, hopefully you got one of those little communion cups on the way in. If not, you can grab that. But communion is a time that Christians remember the way that I get this spiritual life that Jesus wants to give to me. That happened because he laid down his life for me. He didn't just say, what are my rights and what are my freedoms and what are my choices? He laid down his life so he could give you life. His body broken. His bloodshed to forgive your sins, to cleanse you, to make you new, to give you life. Because we have a God of life, physically, spiritually. We have a God of life. And so as you take communion, I don't know all the things that are going around in your head or your heart, but as you take communion, I would encourage you at least towards a couple things to pray about and think about. For those of you that need to confess your sin to God, confess to him. And he forgives you. He forgives you. You are cleansed. And I would encourage you, if you have participated in abortion, 
And that's a secret that you have. And I know for some people that's true. Confess that to God, but also to another trusted human that can assure you that you are forgiven. Confess to God. Confess to God where maybe you've said, yeah, I agree with this stuff, but, but really you haven't done anything. Confess to God where you've just been self-righteous. Not actually having God's heart for those that have sinned and need His grace. Not having God's heart for those that have participated in the ways of the world and thinking we're above that, even though the same underlying structure of wanting our freedom and our choices and not laying down our life is the same thing that we live in. Maybe it's to confess your self-righteousness. And to remember and receive His mercy. And then... Ask for his help to take a next step, to fight for life, to be a culture and a community that cares for life since we have a God of life. I'll pray, take communion when you're ready, then we'll sing a few songs in response. I'll be in the back. If anyone would like prayer, I would love to pray for you. I know that this can open up a lot of stuff, and I'm happy for that to be the beginning of a conversation. Father, I thank you for your grace to us. I thank you that you forgive us. I thank you that no matter what we've done or what we haven't done, that you are a gracious, forgiving God that gave us his life. God, help us to be a church that is like you, that matches your heart as a God of life. From the top to the bottom, Lord, from just every way we think and feel and act, let us be a culture and a community of life. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.